Live from our man caves in Virginia Beach, this is MLS Gone Wild, where Blem and Mike D bring you the latest news, rumors, analytics, predictions, and all things MLS and American soccer. Let's get it going, Blem. Hello and welcome to MLS Gone Wild, Season 2, Episode 17. This is your host, Blem. And this is your co-host, Mike D, hoping everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving. What was your favorite dish at Thanksgiving dinner, Mike D? Every Thanksgiving, I look forward to the stuffing. Every Thanksgiving. I can't disagree with you there. I am a sucker for good green bean casserole. Oh, man. My mom made green bean casserole. She made broccoli casserole. And I had to say this year, the, the green bean casserole took the cake. It's always got to have a nice little crunch, you know, a nice crunchy top layer to it. It really takes it over the top. Oh. But guys, seriously, welcome back to MLS Gone Wild. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to release a podcast in the past couple weeks. But if you haven't already, check out our guest appearance from last week on the Post and Pints podcast. We discussed and predicted all of the MLS Cup playoff action up to this point. Check out Post and Pints anywhere you enjoy podcasts. And just like you do for us, subscribe, rate, and review. Anyways, loyal listeners and fellow MLS fanatics, we have thoroughly missed bringing you weekly MLS news and analytics. But we are back, and we are, as the Nashville fans were saying this week, massive. On this week's episode of MLS Gone Wild, we will discuss the three MLS Cup playoff semifinals that have been played, Greg Vanny stepping down as coach of Toronto FC, and the U.S. men's national team December camp roster. So let's get right into it, Mike D. The Columbus crew look like the team that were Supporter Shield favorites for the majority of the season. The Seattle Sounders are continuing to perform like a team preparing to play in their fourth MLS Cup Finals in the last five years. But let's start with eight-seeded Carlos Hill-led, Bruce Arena-coached New England Revolution who just took down Orlando City SC in Orlando for the first time in matchup history. In this match, the New England Revolution became the first team to take, a, to take two zero leads in the first 30 minutes of consecutive matches in the MLS Cup playoff history, thanks to goals from Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bau. Orlando City called one back, like what I did there, with a goal from Junior, Junior Urso, but it wasn't enough as the Revs went on to score one more to eliminate Orlando City and make the Lions the 15th different team that a Bruce Arena-led team has eliminated from the MLS Cup playoffs. Mike D, we had a red card. We had a missed PK. And the Revs' designated player trio up front is rolling at the right time. Mike D, what were your thoughts on the Orlando City and New England Revolution match? Ah, I – listen, New England beat Philadelphia 2-0 in the first round. And the Union did not look up to the challenge in that game. It was the Gill and Bo show for that game. And while this game added another element in Tejon Buchanan, it was much the same. All the goals and assists came from the dynamic duo up front. And Orlando tried and tried to break through, but couldn't seem to do so as New England defended well and capitalized on their opportunities in crucial moments. So this team coming from the eight seed, to win a playing game against Montreal and catch fire at the right time is, is amazing. Imagine if we had seen this, and we talked about this a little bit, imagine if we had seen this all year. You know, obviously, uh, Gil got hurt, but at any rate, none of that matters because they're catching form when it counts. Oscar Perea has taken his team to its first MLS Cup playoff in club history in his first year with the club, which is amazing, as, as we had mentioned. And one thing to note here, um, I really, you know, I've enjoyed watching Orlando this season. They've done some great things. They've improved. They've changed. I really wish Orlando would stop whining and complaining and throwing these antics and these, these temper tantrums. For me, this, this starts with Nani, and it seems to have trickled to Urso as well as Antonio Carlos. And, I mean, this, as a leader of a team, with the pedigree that you have in Nani, you have to stop it there, and you have to lead your team better. Oscar Preja needs to take this and, and fix it. Um, I don't think anyone in the league does it as bad as they do. 
And like I said, as much as I've loved watching them this season, uh, it's really starting to make me not want to watch them. You know, show some class. Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest issues with Orlando as well. They lose their heads very quickly. They've been a great team to watch all year. They made that run that we never expected them to make in the MLS is back tournament, making it all the way to the finals and losing to Portland. So they look great. And shout out to Oscar Pereja. But that is something they need to fix. That Pereira red card on Matt Polster really changed the spectrum of that match against New England and really changed the momentum and how that game was going. And the thing that bothered me most is just how their players, like you just said, Nani and Junior Junior Urso, who scares the shit out of me, by the way, how they reacted to that. And making contact with the referee for me is unacceptable. The referee was doing a really good job about letting it just brush right off his shoulder. But when you got those guys up in your face and literally laying hands on you, like I think that warrants a card, at least in my mind. And that's not the only disciplinary issues that happen for them in these playoffs. They are missing their goalkeeper, Halese. They were missing Ruan, who got, a, I think, his second yellow in the previous match. So they were missing both of them, which already set them back. And then to get another red card in that game, uh, they just completely lost their cool. But shout out to Oscar Pereja, his first year as the head coach for Orlando, setting a new expectation for Orlando. And they have some young key pieces that they may only have for one more year and Mueller and DK and some of those guys. So we'll see what they get next year and see if they have a level of consistency. Although they just lost Dom Dwyer, even though he wasn't a big asset or piece for that team this year. But one thing I do want to talk about before I uh, really start to hype up new England, even though they are playing our beloved Columbus crew is Nani stepping up to take that penalty kick uh, five for 10 all time when taking PKs in the MLS. What were your thoughts on his performance throughout these playoffs so far, other than just the disciplinary and getting the referee's face? I mean, I think he's playing well. I mean, aside from the PK, what you need, you've said this before, big time players make big time plays. And you need, especially in the playoffs when it counts, a big time player like Nani to put that PK away. And to be five for 10 um, since coming to Orlando is, for me, um, it's subpar. Um, so I think that everywhere else on the field, he's, he makes a difference. I mean, he's, he's everywhere. You know, from the left wing, he drops into the middle. You know, he'd be on the right sometimes. I mean, he's all over the place. So I think that he's, he's incredible in that, in that aspect. But you need to put the penalty away in a crucial moment like that. Yeah, and you would expect him to, although the numbers wouldn't suggest that, but a player that's played for Portugal internationally, Man U, some of the biggest clubs around the world. And maybe Oscar Preha wants him taking the PKs despite the numbers, or maybe some of the players are scared to step up and step on Nani's toes. I don't know, but you would expect him to put it away. But like you just said, something I'm big on, especially excuse me, in the playoffs, is your big players show up in big games. And you talked about the – Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bo relationship, the tandem, the duo that they have going on up front. Since the playoffs have started, the refs have scored seven goals, and every single one has involved either Hill with two goals and three assists or Gustavo Bo, who has three goals and one assist. So they're clicking at the right time. Carlos Hill wasn't healthy all season, and now he comes back, and Gustavo Bo looks good. And I have a quote that kind of explains that from Bruce Arena. So Bruce Arena on the Gustavo Bo and Carlos Hill connection. It gets Gustavo off the ball a lot more in the middle third of the field, which is not his strength. It gets him a little closer to goal. And I've said it before, Gustavo is a goal scorer. He's not much more than that. If you can understand what I'm saying, I'm not complaining, but he's a goal scorer. So we need to get him close to goal. And when Carlos is on the field or Carlos Hill is on the field, he can certainly concentrate on getting in good goal scoring positions and he has since Carlos has returned to play. So Carlos Hill has really complimented Gustavo Bo's um, style of play. And they were without, like I said, Carlos Hill for the majority of the season. And Gustavo Bo was not trying to carry that team, but Books of their other DP, their number nine, their striker, wasn't necessarily carrying his load, but he looks to be uh, getting his swagger back as well, one of their DPs. So, yeah, they're an eight seed, but they don't, they don't look to be playing like an eight seed. But one thing, we, one thing that we briefly, that you briefly touched on, Mike D, is Tejon Buchanan, the Canadian national, national team player. 
He actually started this season as a striker, which I didn't know. He was on the team last year, but played very few minutes. And now Bruce Arena's like, I'm putting an athlete at right back, and they're reaping the benefits. We saw it in the goal against uh, Philadelphia when he took Kai Wagner one-on-one coming down that right side. I believe it was on an overlap, cut inside, beat a weak challenge on Kai Wagner and slotted it in back stick. In this previous game, and I'll touch on it when we kind of preview the Columbus crew and uh, New England Revolution match, but New England loves to run up and down that right side. And Carlos Hill kind of migrates towards that right side, but they don't really have a traditional right winger. Their right winger is essentially uh, Tejon Buchanan, who's getting up and down that entire sideline. And one thing I do want to highlight is a highlight from that match came the 25th minute when Tejon Buchanan and Carlos Hill double teamed uh, Nani on the right-hand side. And Buchanan won the ball, passed it like 10 yards forward to Carlos Hill. Carlos Hill dribbled, dribbled, dribbled slowly, waited for Tejon to get around him. Tejon made an 80-yard sprint down the right side to overlap Carlos Hill. He slots it inside. Buxa puts it off the near post, bounces to, uh, to Gustavo Bo. Gustavo Bo buries it. Tejon Buchanan, I know I listed all those numbers for Heel and Bo, but Tejon Buchanan might be their most valuable player right now in these playoffs. Mm, interesting there, Chuck. Um, we're going we're gonna to chalk it up to the Gilbo show. That's what we're going to call him. Little Gilbo Baggins here. But, uh, yeah, no, Tejon Buchanan is, is incredible, um, especially throughout these playoffs, what we've seen so far. I mean, um, he is an asset, and he's proven that. And so it, it's – to your point, I mean, I love a right back that gets in. I love that, that right wing back that gets in on the attack. I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan, and, you know, the outside backs that get in and, and create chances, you know, um, Andy Robertson and, and – um, and uh, there's my other guy out there who's hurt. Can't think of his name right now. But love when those guys can get in and, and put the balls in the box or, or get in and create with, with somebody checking in and, and get some opportunities on net. So love that. Yeah. Can you imagine a Canadian men's national team defense with two wing backs of Tejon Buchanan and Alfonso Davies on the left-hand side? That might be scary, man. That might be scary. We're, we're getting really hype about the U.S. men's national team, but Canada's on the come up right now. Absolutely. But before we dive into any kind of national team stuff, that's going to come at the end of the episode. Congrats to the New England Revolution for advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals. Our other Eastern Conference semifinals featured an MLS original and a 2020 MLS expansion side. Columbus Crew hosted Nashville SC for the second time this year. Although this match's scoreline was the same as the match on September 19th, it took the Columbus Crew 99 minutes to break the deadlock. Four minutes later, G.I.C. Zardes doubled the lead as he scored a breakaway goal, securing Columbus's spot in the Eastern Conference Finals. Coming into this match, Nashville SC were the first expansion team to win a playoff game in their inaugural season since the 1998 Chicago Fire. And Nashville won two, and upset arguably the second-best team in the league, Toronto FC. Mike D., first, how would you rate Nashville's inaugural season in the MLS? And second, what were your thoughts on that match? I think this answer changes based on, you know, what we've seen up to this point. Um, I'm going to go ahead and rate it a seven out of 10. Cause you know, they were, they were, you know, seven seed coming in, you know, ha ha little play right there on, on the, on the seating. But look, if, if they don't make it past the play in game, I think your answer changes here. But the important thing is, can you get results when it matters? And Nashville proved they can coming in, clawing their way to a semifinal and knocking off a TFC team that has incredible pedigree. This match between Nashville and Columbus was highly anticipated, especially for us crew fans, because Nashville has been good in recent form, especially when knocking off one of the top talents in the MLS in Toronto, like we just talked about. I'll be and, the- and we didn't even know if we were going to play this game because of all the positive COVID cases from the crew. It was seven at the time. Now it's eight. Oh, yeah, for our, for our listeners out there, Blake and I were going back and forth uh, nervous about all the reports coming out about the COVID cases and whether or not our season was going to be cut short because of it or something crazy was going to happen. But going back to the game, I, I, I'll be the first to say I wasn't quite expecting the result to be what it was in the Miami game. But Miami came out flat and Nashville took it to them. Then they ride that wave and go on and knock off TFC, and that's magic. 
Many people out there thought that this might be a Cinderella story after we saw that. But we all know that they had to come to see Bus and see what was really going on. They stole our colors. They made claims that they were massive. And that was simply not going to fly, my friends. I will hand it to them, though. Their defense is very good. And they're incredibly dangerous on set pieces. This gave the crew trouble throughout the game. Both teams were level on shots taken and shots on goal, but it was a breakthrough goal, like Blake said, in overtime in the 99th minute, where Zellerion played a delicious outside of the foot pass down the left side line to Jossie. He takes it to the byline, plays a nice cutback seven ball into Santos, where he puts it away one time to find the back of the net. Not too long after that, our boy Luis Diaz plays a nice through ball to Jossie in the 103rd minute, and he's all alone to slot at home to finish Put the crew up 2-0. That was it for Nashville. Nashville proved in the postseason that they have what it takes to be a top caliber team, in my opinion. I really like Mukhtar, and they have some veterans that will only age like fine wine. It will be exciting to see what they can be in the uh, what they can do in the offseason. And now that they have a, a year under their belt, watch out for this team in 2021. Before I let you go, Chuck, talking a little bit about the crew. We talked about Nashville. You know, it was great that the crew were able to withstand and, and get the result that they needed. The crew played a little slow for me. They've shown in the past um, that, you know, that they're playing, they, they, they can play slow, they can play fast, but in this one, they played a little slow for me. Uh, this allowed Nashville to get behind the ball and, you know, work that defense. You know, they, they set up, they, they sat in, and they kept organized, and the crew needed to play a little bit faster going forward, and they need Zeller around to be a little more dangerous to create chances and open up spaces for other players to get in. Um, for me, um, Zardes is, 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 was an incredible. I mean, we didn't see it until really, really late, but it's the little things for him, you know? You, you talk about top caliber strikers, and you might not – Zardes may get overlooked because he's not getting a whole lot of action on the ball, but he does things that are important in the spaces that matter. He finds really, really good spaces – and people find his feet, and he, he puts the ball in the back of the net. And for me, Zardes, with a goal and assist, man of the match, taking his team to the conference finals where they're going to face this really good New England side uh, who's on fire right now. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an exciting matchup, which we're going to talk about here shortly. Yeah, Giassi Zardes doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. Throughout a lot of that game, we were talking during the game, and Mike D, you know I'm a sucker for a good diagonal run. And even if you do make good diagonal runs or what have you, when you're playing against a good defender like Walker Zimmerman, and Walker Zimmerman had Giassi Zardes in his back pocket for the majority of that match. As the match wore on, I believe it was probably 60 minutes or later into the match, you saw Giassi start on the left side of the 18 and finally make a diagonal run towards the near post. And at that point, when he started making a diagonal run, he was behind Walker Zimmerman. So Walker kind of knew where he was at, but you could see as he started to creep more towards the near post, he got to about the PK spot and Walker had to take a double take and check over his shoulder to see where Giassi was. And by that time he slowed down just enough for Giassi to get by him and Giassi gets the touch on that ball only to get saved by the Nashville goalkeeper. But at that point, the game started to open up for Giassi and Giassi started to make different kinds of runs. He started to get into, um, number mismatches like we saw in that goal in the 99th minute everything started with the Milton Valenzuela throw in on the very left hand side and we probably had five players there Giassi Zardes was double, double teamed by Alistair Johnson and Walker Zimmerman went up won the header and I know you talked about it and if you guys haven't followed us on TikTok follow us on TikTok because we do a we do a quick minute analysis if we can of some of the highlights but he flipped it on to Zellerayan and Romney one of he played every game for Nashville this year, something I saw today. But he played good initial defense on Zellerayan, and he was right on his back and in his pocket. And then as soon as Walker Zimmerman came to double, Romney, their other center back. So keep in mind, both center backs are on the right side of their defensive half covering one guy. Romney drops off, allows Zellerayan to face up outside of his right foot through ball to Giassi Zardes. Giassi Zardes is a guy that everybody – Writes off for the U.S. Men's National Team. We got Josh Sargent. Now we got Io Akinola, Daryl DK, Soto, Gio, v, or Gio, whatever his name is. 
that just played in the, the, the November camp. Yeah, we have great players all over the place, but we have a proven striker here in America. But he's also a distributor. He drove all the way to the end line and with his left foot, and I've seen him shoot the ball with his left foot, and it's wonky sometimes. But for him, first of all, to have the presence of mind to make the diagonal run to the corner to then get that ball to get into the space and then to lay it back to Pedro Santos, too, for me, who had a shaky game. And he, for me, I think he always has a shaky game. I think I just have really high expectations for the guy. But anyway, Zardes finds him at about the PK spot, and he slots at home. And from there, the crew score four minutes later. Luis Diaz, who fills in for a COVID-positive Derek Etienne Jr., at least from my assumptions, because he was on the list. And he plays a ball across the back line. And Nashville's left back keeps Giassi on sides. And Giassi takes one touch, second prep touch, slots it near sticks, something you or I would do in FIFA. I'd probably blow it over in real life. But the crew, like you touched on, they did play a little bit slow to me. But Nashville is a very good defensive team. So first I'm going to say that they don't park the bus like an FC Cincinnati does. They play like right in between a low block and a mid block. And then from there, when they win the ball back, they count on their DP attackers to go forward and try to spring a counterattack. But their defense is stingy as hell. So let me find my stats here. So through these three games, so they won their play-in game, they won their second game, and it took us 99 minutes to score against Nashville SC. They gave up zero goals through 280 minutes of playoff soccer. That is astounding. And we should expect that, to be honest with you, from a Gary Smith-led team. He created a hell of a spine for Nashville. They got Zimmerman, McCarty, Godoy was injured. But they, they also have uh, Romney back there, center back paired with Zimmerman. Like, they have a great spine. And I have noted here that they, they played Moneyball. They've, they've done things differently than we've expected from, like, an LAFC who went out and got Carlos Vela or Atlanta who went out and got Miguel Almarone and Joseph Martinez and all these guys. And they got these flashy guys, and they're going to go out there and outscore you. That is not Nashville's style. And to speak on that, Nashville's second in goals against in the regular season in the East and in the entire league. They only gave up 22 goals. The only team that gave up less was the Columbus crew with 21. So I know I was an advocate for Mark McKenzie winning Defender of the Year, but Walker Zimmerman deserves a hell of a lot of credit. But so does Gary Smith. This was a seven-seeded team coming into – a seventh-seeded expansion team coming into this unprecedented 2020 MLS Cup playoffs. But Gary Smith, he's won it before. He won it with Colorado, who also came in as a seventh seed in 2010, and he did the same thing. He came in and he transformed that team. He brought in proven guys, more inexpensive guys that were going to come in, and they were experienced. They knew how to win. They knew how to play. So I give a lot of credit to Nashville and the way that they set up this roster in their first year. And I'm really interested to see what they do going into 2021 and where they spend their money because they have some, they have some pieces up front. I know you talked about uh, honey Mokhtar and he's a good player. He's very flashy, but they, they need to find maybe better pieces, maybe more valuable pieces. I'm not sure they need, they need another touch up front Maybe now after they get through their inaugural season and they built their defense, maybe now they look for a guy like Atlanta's Almarone or Atlanta's Joseph Martinez. Maybe now they look for that. But to their defense, they also – I've been talking about their defense, but to their defense, they also just played three games in nine days. So these teams that had to play in the play-in games, I don't want to say they had an unfair advantage because they didn't earn the, the right to not have that play-in game, but – they, they did play one more game than these other teams going into it. But I want to talk about the crew one more time. I know we talked about them playing slow. One thing that Caleb Porter pounds into his team is trust in the system and be patient. And that is exactly what the crew did. I do think that they, they played slow. And a lot of times you see the crew play down to their opponents and it's, 
you know, it can, it, it can be a shaky game sometimes, but they did play a little bit slow, but they stuck to the possession-oriented soccer until they wore Nashville down. Like I said, three games in nine days, they're probably going to wear down. And they did, and then that's when the crew capitalized two goals in four minutes. But my key player to this match and the match that's coming up is going to be Darlington Nagby. Every time Darlington Nagby carried the ball in that game, Mike D, he looked dangerous, I thought. And he created chances for the Columbus crew offense. I would expect nothing less from the man. No, I would not either. But in saying that, we've touched on New England. We've touched on the crew. So that means the Eastern Conference Finals are set. The Columbus crew and New England Revolution will meet in the Eastern Conference Finals for the second time ever and the first time since 2002. The winner of this match will be the first MLS original to make a final since the crew did in 2015 when I was there and they lost to a Caleb Porter, Portland Timbers team. Very sad. Mike D, who is headed to the MLS Cup Finals on December 12th and why? I have to, I mean, I have to go with the crew. I have to go with the crew. Call me biased. Call me whatever you want. I don't care. Maybe I am a little biased. Maybe. But you know what? Like we've said, the crew are showing at the right time what they showed early on in the season which is that they are a team that can win it all so long as they do the right things. Yeah, they had a little stint at the end of the season where people were like, oh, it's the old crew, it's happening again, but they turned it around quickly. If the crew want to go to the final, they need to do a couple of things. First, they need to stop the Gilbo show flat out. They can do that and they can play their game. They can trust in the process and trust in their system. The only other thing that needs to happen is a little bit more pace in the play for me. If they can't stop Bo and they can't stop Gill, it's, it's going to be a problem. Buchanan being an X-factor who will find that space around them, even as an, a, a right back, he's going to get involved. Buxa and Polster I'm not so worried about, but the dynamic duo is a threat. And if they can stop them, trust in their system, and do what they've been doing, we'll be all right. Yeah, Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bo. They are an intimidating force right now, and you throw Books up there and Buchanan up there. They're a scary team to play, and with Bruce Arena's mindset that they're underdogs, and he came out in a quote. I don't have the exact quote, but he said, in a one-off, which means one and done, the underdog kind of has the leg up. The game is at home. The crew, I believe, are going to have 1,500 fans in the stands. I did just see that today, so it seems like the game is going to be on for Sunday, even though there's still some COVID-positive cases out there. But just some matchups that I am interested to watch, and then I'll give you my prediction for the game. Tejon Buchanan, I've been talking very highly of. I want to see how that left side of the Columbus crew will deal with him. So that being like Pedro Santos and Milton Valenzuela, our left back, seeing how we deal with Tejon and if we allow those overlaps or if we're able to communicate and then pass somebody on so that overlap does not happen. And like I said earlier, Carlos Hill starts out kind of on the right, but then he migrates to the middle. So they really don't have a right winger. They have that right wing back, Tejon Buchanan. So I'm interested to see how the crew matches up with that as he has looked like one of the best or the best right back in these playoffs so far. Kessler versus Zardes. We just talked about Zardes versus Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman's in the U.S. Men's National Team December camp. And like I said, for the first probably 98 minutes or so, Zimmerman controlled Zardes pretty well, tracked his runs, passed him on to Romney, was on his back, didn't let, allow him to get a whole lot of space until things started to fatigue for Nashville and Zardes started to find a little bit more space. Kessler did a really, really, really good job against another player that's in the U.S. Men's National December, December camp uh, right now, Daryl DK, his teammate at University of Virginia. Kessler was in his back pocket as well. And I – think that Daryl DK might be a little bit of a better holdup player, uh, has a better first touch, better layoff stuff than Giassi does, but very similar in stature and things like that. So I'm interested to see that matchup as well. And we're both midfielders by trade. Now you're converted into a defender, Mike D. But, you know, I'm a sucker for a good midfield battle. So I'm interested to see Zeller Aon and possibly Darlington Nagby getting up into the attack versus a Matt Polster and Scotty Caldwell, who have done a really good job about locking up midfields throughout this playoffs. We saw him do it to Philadelphia. We just saw him do it to Orlando, two top four teams, two top four finishers in the East with really good midfields and good attacking midfielders. So I'm interested to see how that works for Lucas Zellerayan and Darlington Nagby and even Artur when he gets in there. 
but flip it to the other side. I said Carlos still kind of starts out on the right but floats back into the middle. He's essentially there 10. And I'm interested to see how our defensive midfielders, our tour, and Darlington Nagby, who's probably also going to be somewhat responsible for Hill back there, how they end up defending him. So I think it's going to be a really good game. Also, two really, really big-name coaches. Caleb Porter, Bruce Arena, they faced in a Western Conference playoff game a couple years back. The GIF is flying around the internet right now. When Bruce Arena was with the LA Galaxy, Caleb Porter was with Portland Timbers, and they went to shake hands after the game, and Caleb Porter was running his mouth. And I love the fire that Caleb Porter has shown throughout the season and throughout the playoffs. Uh, I hope we see the same kind of finish as they did in that game when Caleb Porter's Portland Timbers knocked out the LA Galaxy and we saw that passion from Caleb Porter. So I hope the same thing happens at home in Matford Stadium for the Columbus crew because who knows, if Seattle loses to either Sporting Kansas City or Minnesota, the Columbus crew could be hosting the MLS Cup, maybe. All right, Mike D, now let's move on over to the left side of the bracket, the Western Conference. Tuesday's Western Conference semifinal between the Seattle Sounders and FC Dallas was a rematch from last year's opening round of the MLS Cup playoffs where the Sounders defeated FC Dallas 4-3 in the second period of extra time. FC Dallas couldn't get it done last year, and they fell by a margin of one goal this year to extend Seattle's home playoff win streak to 14 games. Throughout this match, we saw periods of time when, when FC Dallas sat in the low mid-block and was content with weathering the storm. But we also saw FC Dallas's willingness and ability to attack the Sounder defense. It wasn't the Sounders' big three that scored the goal to eliminate Dallas, though. It was center back Shane O'Neill off a header from a set-piece corner kick. Seattle now have their sights set on a fourth MLS Cup final appearance in the last five years. What did you think of this version of Seattle versus FC Dallas in the 2020 playoffs? All right, Nico Ladero, like you said, assists Shane O'Neill on a corner kick in the 49th minute. I mean, come on. Who would have expected this? Definitely not me, that's for sure. Schmetzer said in his post-game interview that, quote, we were better on one play, end quote, referring to the corner scored by O'Neill. And this, for me, kind of summed up the game. Dallas, in my opinion, for what I saw, did not completely bunker like may, people may have thought they would have. Uh, I like that they came out and attempted to go toe-to-toe with Seattle. The game, for the most part, was pretty open, and the energy was high. And Seattle had 17 shots, four on target, while Dallas had 10 shots and zero on target. But defensively, Dallas gave Seattle troubles with their quickness to apply pressure to the ball all over the pitch, which made Seattle work for it, never really allowing them to get super comfortable. Seattle was a great team that was able to play in tight spaces and solve this, but Dallas definitely created problems for them and made them work for it. Lucci's done a great job with this team this year, and, and they've got some young talent that with some more time, I think really can make a difference. On the other side with Ladero, Rui Diaz, Roldan, and the likes of others contributing to the offensive effort, I thought Seattle looked really good. They've looked really good in the playoffs so far, and you and I spoke after that game, and I thought Jordan Morris had an okay game, but I must have been watching something different because Ryan Reynolds was giving him all sorts of trouble. In 89 minutes played, Morris had three cramps, 60% <laughs> accuracy passing, zero dribbles completed, and he lost possession 18 times. A 1-0 victory, with that being said, off of a corner is not a convincing wing for this strong Seattle team that's favorited. And they will need to be better in some aspects if they plan to make it past the winner of the SKC-Minnesota game. Overall, though, they, they handled business despite Dallas fighting tooth and nail to stop them. So, so hats off to Seattle. Hats off to Dallas. Uh, they played a great game, and they had a good run. Yeah, if I'm Dallas, I'm a little upset because of how you played them last year. It seems like they're kind of always getting knocked out either by Portland or Seattle in the playoff rounds, but they lost 4-3 last year and the second extra time on a Jordan Morris goal. So with that being said, like you just touched on, it's not like they gave up a bunch of goals. They competed throughout this game. They lost on a corner kick to a defender who's replacing another center back who's replacing Ariaga, who's been the starting back for Seattle all season. With me saying that, 
Schmetzer has done a really good job about preparing guys that are on the bench to come in and fill for the starters that are there. Like I just said, Shane O'Neill, who's filling in for Ariaga, who started all season. And Alex Roldan, Christian Roldan's brother, has been starting it right back for Lear Dam, who was a standout last year for Seattle. And Seattle was healthy last year when they beat them 4-3, completely healthy. And now they're a little bit banged up on the back line, and FC Dallas can't get it done. Not saying FC Dallas didn't have their chances because they did put some pressure on Seattle. But when I was on the Post and Pines podcast last week, I gave a very simple response to this game. They said, Blake, who's going to win this game, FC Dallas or Seattle? And I said, Seattle's too much. They got Jordan Morris, Rui Diaz, Nico Ladero, Brian Schmetzer as their coach. And take the big three players out of it, even though Nico Ladero never has had a bad game in my eyes because he still runs the game and he gave the assist. But it's all about Brian Schmetzer. Brian Schmetzer has the highest active winning percentage and the highest active playoff winning percentage in the MLS. The guy knows how to win despite what he's got on the field. Granted, he's still got some great players, but he knows how to backfill those pieces. Lucci and FC Dallas, they did a great job. Like you touched on, they have a couple young pieces, especially Tessman, Ricardo Pepe, and big bad Brian Reynolds, who's linked to going to Juve. And Lucci's even come out to say he would love to field like 11 young players that came through the academy. And the way they're going, they might. And they're kind of paving the way for a new MLS and you know, how the MLS is going to look, maybe down the line. And for them to even make it this far and to get past the Portland team, even though they were a little bit beat up on the offensive end to win in PKs. And R- Ricardo Pepe, the 17-year-old, scoring a goal in, the, you know, in, extra, in, in dead time you know, to take it to extra time to then give them a chance to win in PKs. Good on FC Dallas. It sucks for them that every year they have to run into these Western Conference, Cascadia Giants in Portland and Seattle. FC Dallas fans, stick with it, man. It's not always going to be like this. One day they will fall off. But it was a competitive game to watch, and I'm just really happy that FC Dallas didn't just sit in. They were willing to run and run and gun and try to give Seattle a run for their money. But like Mike D said, sporting, not sporting, Seattle is going to be playing the winner of Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota. They're set to face off tomorrow night on Fox. The winner will play, like I just said, Seattle Sounders for a spot in the 2020 MLS Cup Final. Polito is officially back for Sporting Kansas City, but the Reynoso and Molino pairing continues to impress for Minnesota United. Who moves on to play Seattle in the Western Conference Finals and why, Mike D? First off, I'm going to address something. We are recording this podcast, listeners, the day before the SKC Minnesota match. So when you're listening to this right now, it will be the day of the match. So getting back into things, Minnesota or a, we- or a week later, Minnesota are unbeaten in nine games. SKC finished atop the Western Conference. In the last five meetings between these two teams, they have been decided by one goal. However, that being said. SKC have dominated with 10 wins in their last 15 meetings. Polito will be back, as you mentioned, but we don't really know how much time he's going to get. We don't know if he's going to start or what. And SKC are missing some key pieces in defense, which really isn't new, but this could be a problem for them. And Minnesota is hitting form at the right time. I got Minnesota in this one going uh, ahead of, of SKC to move on to play Seattle. If... Sporting Kansas City does go on to win this game like they, they may. Peter Vermees would round out the four coaches, and that would make for four American coaches in the final four with Peter Vermees, Caleb Porter, Bruce Serena, and Schmetzer, Brian Schmetzer of Seattle. So if Sporting Kansas City wins this game, that's how the final four will end up all American coaches. Like we said, Alan Polito is apparently back from, I believe, a hamstring injury. Kyrie Shelton has looked really good playing as the number nine for Sporting Kansas City. He gave that assist to John Luca Busio, the back heel assist to John Luca as he was running in and making that run in behind him inside the 18. And Kyrie's looked really good. He went overseas and played for, I believe, Paderborn in Germany last year on loan. And now he's back and he looks really good. And if Kyrie Shelton starts, great. If Alan Politos comes off the bench, great. You know, it's a change of pace. It's a change of style of play. But I also think Minnesota offers something that a lot of teams just – it's very similar to the Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bo show. We've always known Kevin Molino is a good player. But when you put Emmanuel Reynoso right there next to him, he looks even better. 
And for me, hot boy Kevin Molino is a game changer. And to me, he's probably a top five player in the MLS. His feet are incredible. His touch is incredible. The way that he moves and shapes his body is incredible. And Reynoso compliments that. And you have Robin Lode up top, Ethan Finley out outright. Your team is your, – your attack, at least you're attacking three – is elite and possibly the most elite in the Western conference. So I'm interested to see, like you said, how that sporting Kansas city banged up defense is going to play against those three guys. For me, I know when I was on post and pints, I picked this game was already supposed to happen. I, I, I did pick Minnesota. I'm going to stick with that. I think Minnesota is going to come out on top. They just won their first ever MLS Cup playoff game in their first game of the playoffs. And I think they're going to get a dub here in the semis to find themselves in Seattle for a spot in the MLS Cup finals. Ooh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, um, one thing that I forgot to mention, I think that, you know, like you said, um, the, the SKC has that back, that back line that's banged up. and. Um, Minnesota's got, you know, hot boy right now. And, you know, they got guys like Robin Lode and, you know, Ethan Finley. Um, and I think all in all, I think it's going to be a battle. Um, but, you know, I mean, both teams have good offenses and it could be back and forth action with their, their history. Uh, it very well be, you know, very well could be a low scoring affair that takes us to extra time once again in this 2020 uh, MLS Cup playoff um, scenario that we've seen time and time again. But beware, though, if it does go to PKs, we've seen it before. SKC have Tim, the wall, Melia. So he the X factor. He, he came out today and he said, you can't be good at PKs. So I believe he was insinuating he got lucky. But, oh. hey, man, if, if you do your homework and you write which side they go to on your water bottle, on your gloves, on your forearm, on your jersey, I don't know. Uh, if the players are silly enough to continue to go to the same side, maybe it's yeah, not I mean, just luck. Yeah, I mean, the, the Quakes didn't take great PKs, though. I mean, he didn't have to really – my my opinion, uh, I didn't think he had to work too hard to save those. But, hey, three in a row, he's, whatever, fine. You, that's a great job. So Yeah, he's a great goalkeeper, and I'm a little bit sad he's never really seen a lot of time for the U.S. men's national team. But the Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota game, we've seen some really good games. We've seen upsets in these 2020 MLS Cup playoffs so far, but I think this is going to be one of our most competitive matches that we will see in these playoffs. After this game, we're only going to have three games left. And I think after all said and done, this Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota game is going to be one that we're going to look back on and say, this shit was a classic. But we've talked about that there's going to be potentially four American coaches that are very well established. Peter Vermees, Caleb Porter, Bruce Arena, Brian Schmetzer in, in the, in the, in the final four of the MLS cup playoffs. But we saw a coach that has such a decorated history with Toronto FC. Just step down from Toronto FC. Ladies and gentlemen, the MLS coaching carousel has begun. Greg Vanny, former head coach of Toronto FC has stepped down three-time Eastern Conference champion, three-time Canadian champion, one-time Supporter Shield winner, one-time MLS Cup champion as a coach for an organization who didn't make the playoffs in each of its first eight seasons without him. And his first full year as head coach, Toronto made the playoffs. In a quote from his press conference following the announcement of him stepping down, Vanny said, I'm a builder. I like to build things. I like projects. This club is in a good place. There's not a lot of building to do. New York Red Bulls, Atlanta United, D.C. United, L.A. Galaxy, you're now on the clock. Mike D., where is Vanny going to build a winning culture next? I think that with the teams you mentioned, we've seen the most recent one being the L.A. Galaxy. I think that's where he's going to go. I think, you know, D.C. United, Atlanta United, and uh, the possibility of Seattle. While I don't think that that's going to really happen, I think if that spot does open, Seattle doesn't really need a whole lot of building, which is something that you just mentioned in that quote. The two teams that I think where he would go or where he would land would be L.A. Galaxy or D.C. United. While I would love to see him come to D.C. United and, and 
be the, the coach for a team that's close to home for us, I think he's going to go to the LA Galaxy because while DC United could use some help, LA Galaxy is a team right now that needs to rebuild. And for Greg Vanny, and referencing that quote you just said, this is going to be the challenge that he, he wants because the LA Galaxy is a team that used to be top-tier talent. And they are a shell of once they, what they once were. And I think this is going to be that perfect challenge for him. So that's who I think he's going to go to. Um, but, but yeah, um, where, as, as to who replaces him, I don't know if you mentioned that or not. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. It's very soon. It only happened just a couple of days ago. I did see, though, that, that TFC came out with a statement and said that their goal is to find someone sooner rather than later. They want a top coach and they don't necessarily require MLS experience for that position. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, one team that you just mentioned he may go to, D.C. United, their coach that just got let go this year, Ben Olsen, was rumored to be going to them. That was the first name that I saw get thrown out there after Greg Vanny announced that he was going to be stepping down. So we'll see. I don't think that's going to be a great uh, link up for Toronto FC. But whoever does fill in for Greg Vanny, those are really, really, really big shoes but to be honest with you I don't think he goes to an Eastern Conference team so I think that we can rule that out and saying that because he's been doing this with Toronto for so long and being as good as of a coach that he is he don't want to get in the playoffs and beat his old Toronto FC team man he don't want to go out there and beat Michael Bradley and Josie Altador but in all seriousness no I think that he's going to go to LA Galaxy and what I just said doesn't really matter. I don't think that matters to him. I think the best situation for him and his family is what he's holding precedent to. And I think he's ready for a new challenge. He came out and said that. I know that Toronto came out and tried to offer him a couple new contract or eight, at least one new contract this year. And I think it's just kind of been written in the stars and it's been known between the two clubs. And unfortunately he's going out on a loss to an expansion team, but he, like I listed all those accolades before that's a pill that he can swallow, but Greg Vanny, he went to UCLA and he played two stints at the LA Galaxy. It is a team that needs rebuilding. It's a culture that needs rebuilding after Guillermo Berescoloto left, and he kind of took that team down a, a tactical road that they didn't want to go down and a, a road that they were very reliant on their stars. LA also needs to re-sign Christian Pavone, and maybe if Greg Vanny gets over there quick enough, they will uh, make a deal and get Christian Pavone on a permanent deal. But with that being said, maybe Greg Vanny, a little bit of power over there. Go ahead and pull Don Dwyer over there with you. What do you got to lose? You know, you got Chicharito. You got Chicharito. Maybe bringing Don Dwyer. I mean, is there an argument for who's better or who's worse? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> don't even get me started. Yeah, we're not going to get started into that. I think we both, in our hearts, think that he ends up in LA. I would love to see LA get back to what they used to be. I would love to see Atlanta get back to what they used to be, but I don't think he is the coach for Atlanta. I think Atlanta's got bigger problems that they need to solve over there. But listeners, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, At A Time Outfitters. After the break, we'll be discussing the 23-man U.S. Men's National Team roster for December camp. We'll be back in 60 seconds. We all love the beautiful game. We spend countless hours watching, tweeting, discussing, playing, and talking about the sport. And we all have our favorite memories when our teams made history. Moments like Liverpool's miracle in Istanbul or Celtics 2-1 triumph over arguably the best Barca side ever. Those moments that keep us coming back for more. But what if you could carry those moments with you all the time? At a time outfitters create soccer-inspired wristbands that let you wear those memories on your wrist. Each reversible elastic design gives supporters of the beautiful game a unique way to rep their favorite team in any setting. With wristbands for your favorite teams from across Europe, the USA, and beyond, each added time design incorporates a 90-minute story from that famous match. Check out all 24 of Added Time Outfitters' current designs on the web at www.addedtime.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Added Time Outfitters. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 17 of MLS Gone Wild. Thanks for sticking around. Head over to AdditimeOutfitters.com for your soccer-inspired wristbands and stickers. Use promo code GONEWILD at checkout for 10% off of your entire order. And guys, they even sell U.S. Men's National Team swag. 
on Monday, the 22, now 23-man roster, was announced for the U.S. Men's National Team December camp that wraps up on December 9th with a CONCACAF friendly against El Salvador. Players called up for this camp include, bear with me here, ladies and gentlemen, goalkeeper C.J. Santos, Bill Hamid, David Ochoa, defenders Julian Araujo, Kyle Duncan, Marco Farfan, Aaron Long, Mark McKenzie, Mauricio Pineda, Sam Vines, and Walker Zimmerman. Midfielders, Brendan Aronson, who we interviewed. Kellen Acosta, who we've interviewed. Uh, not Frankie Amaya. I have Frankie there. Cross that out. Andres Perea has replaced him. Cole Bassett, who we have interviewed. Sebastian Legette, who also featured in the November camp. And Jackson Yule from San Jose, who just got called in today. One of our only true number sixes in that midfield. Forwards, Io Akinola, Efrain Alvarez, Paul Ariola. Daryl DK, Georgie Mihailovic, and Chris Mueller. To note, players to potentially earn their first cap, dual national, Io Akinola, who's also uh, could be called up to Canada. Efrain Alvarez, dual nat, that could also be called up to Mexico. Andres Perea, who could also be called up to Colombia. Julian Araujo, who could also be called up to Mexico, another dual nat. Cole Bassett, Daryl DK, who, believe it or not, is also a dual nat that could get called up to Nigeria. C.J. Dos Santos, Kyle Duncan, Marco Farfan, Chris Mueller, David Ochoa, Mauricio Pineda. That's the list. Mike D., I got a list of questions that we're going to discuss real quick before we get off this pod. You ready? I'm ready. Whose stock rises the most following this camp and match for El Salvador? I don't have just one. Mark Talk McKenzie, to me. Mark McKenzie, Sammy Vines, Cole Bassett, Ayo Akinola, Daryl D.K., Elfrain Alvarez, and Chris Mueller. These God guys, bless. That's the whole roster, man. No, no, no. These are the guys for me that had a really, really good year. Um, you know, Mark McKenzie, Sammy Vines, Cole Bassett. You know, these guys are, are have had breakout years. Um, Iowa can obviously Daryl DK and, and the others that I mentioned. So those are the guys that um, their stock goes up with the exposure to the, to the national team here. Oh, man. I really haven't even thought it through. I just typed out the question. I would hope it would come to me quickly. Oh, Mike D, those are really good picks. But if I got to pick one, I know Mark McKenzie, he just had a, an official transfer bid come in from Celtic that was declined by Philadelphia Union. So for me, we saw his teammate, Brendan Aronson, get sold off to Red Bull Salzburg to go play under Jesse Marsh. I think the player that stock is going to rise the most, even though it's rose so much, risen so much, this year, like you just said, is Mark McKenzie. They declined that offer to Celtic. The owner of Philadelphia came out today and said they want to keep the majority of this team together, the Philadelphia team together going into 2021. But I don't think you're going to hold on to Mark McKenzie much longer. I really, really don't. And with that being said, it's not the next question on our list, but I'm going to segue into that. Also, Walker Zimmerman was on an interview today, and they asked him, you know, are you interested in a move to Europe? And he said, yeah, any opportunities available to me, I'm willing to explore. So, Mike D., let me ask you this question. Are Walker Zimmerman or Mark McKenzie realistic candidates right now to play alongside Jonathan Brooks if the U.S. men's national team had to play a World Cup qualifier? Nah. No, I don't think so, bro. I don't think so. You kidding me? What kind of question is that? Absolutely. I think, for me, the ideal center back duo is going to be Walker Zimmerman and John Brooks. That's, that's a bad duo right there. These are some big boys. And while Mark McKenzie is going to get his action, I think at the end of the day, Triple G is going to come down to Walker Zimmerman and John Brooks. Yeah, I can't give you a definitive answer on which one it's going to be. I mean, it could be Mark McKenzie. It could be Walker Zimmerman. He may rate Aaron Long for all I know. Chris Richards is still out there in the world. We have some depth at the center back spot, but I think the pairing – Next to Jonathan Brooks is going to be one of our fellow MLSers, either Walker Zimmerman or Mark McKenzie. So since we're talking a little bit about positions and who we favor and who would go where, Daryl DK or Io Akinola or both? All right. So for me, Daryl DK, eight goals, four assists. Io Akinola, nine goals, zero assists. Daryl DK is my guy. I've talked about it before. Both of these guys are going to get PT. They're both going to do good things, I'm sure. But as I said before, and as the numbers show, Daryl is involved other than goals, and I like that. 
I will like that. He will have Chris Mueller to play with if they decide to play them together, and that's going to also benefit the, with the team chemistry that they got. So Daryl's my guy. Yeah, I think they play two different styles, so it's it depends on, I think, the opponent. Io Akinola is a guy that can get into space, can get into behind, can get in behind and run at defenders and run in behind and get one-on-one with the goalkeeper very easily with his speed and his power. We've seen him bully some veteran defenders in the MLS just this year. But we've also seen the same thing, at least from bullying defenders, from Daryl DK this year. But Daryl DK shows a different kind of game. He's more of a target striker. He can lay a ball off. Ideally, Greg Berhalter came out today and said we'd love to find him more in the box. But Daryl DK wants to combine. That's just what he does. So they are two different players. But I believe they could both play at the same time. Io Akinola has shown when Josie Altador and him both play together, which same, same, Daryl DK, not same, same, but, you know, say – Josie and Akinola playing together at Toronto and Daryl DK and Akinola playing together with the national team. Akinola can slide out right and be just fine with his speed and his power. Maybe he gets in behind if somebody plays it to the corner flag or if he makes a diagonal run in behind the left back. Like Akinola is a very fast, powerful player. So they could play together depending on what formation they play. And it could be, you know, if we were playing a World Cup qualifier tomorrow, let's say, and both of these guys were on the roster, you start. Daryl DK and Daryl DK is a big, powerful defender that's going to wear you down. He's going to play hold up play and he's going to make those defenders work and run like he just did against New England. And then you bring in Io Akinola off the bench, who's going to make that diagonal run in behind the defenders and get one on one with the goalkeeper. You're smoked. You know, Daryl DK is a big, powerful, fast guy, but Akinola is different with the speed. Okay. He's powerful. Yeah. So I, I think it's a matter of who you're playing against and if you want to move Akinola outright. But I think if you had to play a pure striker position, a guy that's going to play hold-up play, similar to Josie, I think it's more DLDK. If you want players to get in behind, I think it's more AO Akinola. I agree. Next question, comparisons. So Cole Bassett, Brennan Erickson, both been great this year. We've seen one going over to Salzburg, Cole Bassett, just trained over at Arsenal, trained into some German clubs, and he's been rumored to be going overseas very soon as well, maybe after this next U20 World Cup. But do you think they can play in the midfield together because they're very similar, or does one need to come on for one another? I do. I think they can play together. I think that they would be a great partnership, to be honest. I think that, you know, Bassett's got five goals, five assists, and Harrison's got four goals and seven assists. And so they complement each other uh, in a way that from the style of play, Brendan Aronson is, is highly energetic. He's, he wants to go forward. He wants to go forward often. And while he's very energetic to get back to and play defense, I think that Cole Bassett has the, the mentality where he would be okay with letting Brendan run and him sitting a little bit behind. I think they could also transition off of each other as well. You know, if, if Brendan goes, you know, Cole sits. And if Cole goes, Brendan sits. And I think that that could work. You know, it, it goes back to what you just said a moment ago. It depends on who you're playing and, and the situation and the tactic that you're looking to achieve. But I think that it could be – it would be something – it would be interesting to see how they work together in the midfield. But I think it's possible. Yeah, I would love to see it. And this we have this friendly coming up on December 9th against El Salvador. And I think that with – the November camp that we've seen a bunch of these young guys, uh, European-based Americans, a, a young group play for Greg Berhalter, a lot of them for the first time. And now we see Cole Bassett coming in here for the first time for the senior national team, getting his possibly his first cap. I, I'd be interested to see, like I was saying, I think it's a good time to experiment with these young guys like this and see what will work. And I think that this is a partnership, even though they're very similar, I think they're both very young willing and hungry to learn and adapt to a national team environment and situation that they so that they want to play in so badly and that's kind of been their goals and their dreams but Mike D we've talked about some of the players that have been in the camp who of the MLS players that are either still playing or in the MLS Cup playoffs or that didn't get selected would you have liked to have seen in the camp I, I answer, you know, I, th- I saw this question and I wanted it to be kind of first ones that come to mind. Right. So without a whole lot of research or investigation, the first one, the first names that came to mind were Keaton Parks and, and Caden Clark. Um, Keaton Parks has three goals and one assist, but a lot of what he does doesn't translate to stats on paper. I think he's had a good year. 
Um, and so I think that it would be – he's he's played with the national team before. I'm not sure. I, th I think it was at the youth level. I'm not entirely sure, but it was last year. I know that. I still remember seeing a picture. Um, but he's he's got some experience there, and I would have liked to see him here as well. Caden Clark, young, and while his stats in PT are not off the charts, if you watch this kid play, I think he's ready. He just he just got called up. He just got promoted to the New York Red Bulls first team, and he came on. He's already scored two goals and one in the playoffs. Yeah, I think which is crazy. If you, if you watch the kid play, his ability to get into spaces and his willingness to pull the trigger and find the back of the net. I mean, it's not a whole lot. He's got, I think, two, like I said, two goals. I don't know if I said it or not, but um, he's hungry. And I think that he's ready to be exposed to that environment. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I have two names. I have Keaton Parks written down here. Last time we saw him play was, well, last time I watched him play was against Columbus Crew. And he, he was playing very well. He's a very good player. Very, I mean, he's a, he's a decently sized center midfielder but two players that I would like would have liked to have seen is the injured Eric Williamson unfortunately he's looked really good for the Portland Timbers this year earlier this year I almost I, I believe I called him the not the replacement but somebody that can fill in for the Darlington Nagby role and can play both the offensive and defensive piece for a Portland Timbers team who direly needed that they do have Diego Char Diego Valeri in the midfield but they needed a box to box which is an Eric Williamson and he proved that in some of the games this year with his goals and assists but another guy that we did have the pleasure of having on the podcast I don't think so Greg Berhalter is the coach I don't think he would have brought his son into the camp I think he would have brought his good buddy Aiden Morris into the U.S. men's national team camp. Aiden Morris has started games for the Columbus crew. The Columbus crew at one point were the team that was favored to win the Supporters' Shield, and then players got injured like Darlington Nagby. And other than Fatai Alashe, the ex-FC Cincinnati player, current Columbus crew player, Aiden Morris filled in for that role very, very well. Very energetic, uh, can counter-press very well, really good in possession, really, really good player. And he's learning under a veteran in Darlington Nagby and he's only getting better. And I, you know, and I would love to say, I would love to see Darlington Nagby back in the camp. Maybe Greg can pull some strings, man. I don't know, but yeah, I with think Darlington. Said, though, with that being said, um, I think, and this is pretty, pretty obvious. There's an agenda here with this, with this December camp roster, all those guys that are dual nuts, triple G knows what he's doing. This guy's playing the selling game right now. He's trying same, to lock these guys up. Same he, thing he did with Eunice Musa. The same exact yeah. thing. He's trying to sell the program. Get He's trying to get them comfortable. Have the guys be lovey-dovey to them. Oh, man, bro, you're great. You know, hype them up. Get them involved. You know, make them good friends. They're all going to follow each other on Instagram. Be messaging each other just like they did with Eunice Musa. And it could work, you know. It really could work. And Greg Berhalter, I'm sorry to, to – to cut you off right there, Mike D, but Greg Berhalter does have an agenda. And Jurgen Klinsmann started to do this when he was in charge of the U.S. men's national team, getting those George, uh, not Georgian, uh, shout out the Mate, the Germany dual Nats. And he did, he did that very well, Jurgen Klinsmann did. And now we're finding players everywhere, players we've never heard of, players within the MLS we didn't even know that had American heritage. And, you know, and not just in the MLS, but in Europe, we, we hear about a new U.S. men's national team prospect on a daily basis now, which also goes, it's, it's a big shout out to U.S. men's national team Twitter because U.S. men's national team only, one goal U.S., those guys are all over with constantly reporting on young U.S. men's national team pro prospects, dual nat or single nat players. But Mike D, last question before we get off here. Who are you most excited to see in this December U.S. Men's National Team camp? Cole Bassett. Cole Bassett. I, I have a couple different names here, but I, I wanted to just pick one because I listed basically half the roster for my other one. So I, I want, I'm excited to see Cole Bassett. I mean, we had him on the show. He's an exciting young talent. I think he was the leading goal scorer or leading assist leader or something like that for Colorado. I'm not entirely sure. I could be completely wrong. Fact check me. Don't at me though. Uh, but Cole Bassett. Um, yeah, he's, he's a very exciting young talent and I'm excited to see what he brings at the, at the U S men's national team level. Yeah. I think I'm going to take Michael Bradley here. <laughs> 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I would like to see there is going to be a January camp. I would like to see Michael Bradley suit up one more time. Just just for old time, shits and giggles, man. Close out the era. Turn it over to the young bloods. For for God's sake, he just lost Greg Vanny. The guy's career's over. Give him one more shot with the national team. But in all seriousness, yes, I would love to see Cole do really well. Yes, I would love to see Brendan Aronson do really well. Those are two guys we've interviewed. What's who's the one guy that I haven't named yet? That we've interviewed? Yeah. Oh, you already know. Kellen Acosta? Kellen Acosta. I posted a clip the other day of him saying that. Yes, he is ready, motivated, and wants to still play for this U.S. men's national team. And, yes, he still wants to go over to Europe. This kid, is, he's still young. I think he's like 24 years old. He's a young player. But he's, he came up through the ranks of FC Dallas, just got traded. He came up through the academy at FC Dallas, the best academy in the freaking nation in the MLS, got traded to, to the Colorado Rapids, and now he's playing with a lot of younger players. But he's, he looks a lot better. He looks like there's a little bit of pressure taken off of him. But it seems like he's working hard, and he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. So, on one end, you know, he did say that, yes, he is motivated. He wants to play for the U.S. men's national team, which here he is. And I asked you whose stock could rise the most. It could be Kellen Acosta. If they see Kellen Acosta come on the stage, I'm interested to see where he lines up with all these good midfielders that we have, this good, young midfield talent, if it's either him or Sebastian Legit playing in there with a couple young guys or whatever it is or even Jackson Yule, who's got a, cap, a couple caps under him. But I think it's Kellen Acosta for me. He's hungry. He wanted to be back in this team. He's been written off. He doesn't want to be written off. He's taken this shit personally, and it's time to get back to business, and it's time to earn his spot back, Mike D. So I'm excited to see that. Shouts. Big facts. Big facts to Kellen. All right, Mike D., so we've hit a lot. We're probably at about the hour mark. Mike D., do you have anything you want to say before I close us out? I have nothing important to say. I think everything was said. We are upon the MLS Cup playoffs finally coming to an end to get to the MLS Cup 2020 final. I can't wait. I'll see you all there with the Columbus crew. Blake and I will be in C-Bus. I told Mike D a couple weeks ago that no matter where the game is, so if, if the crew – are in the, in the final, and Seattle wins the Western Conference final, the game's in Seattle, I'm going to whatever that stadium is called. It used to be CenturyLink. I think now it's Lumen Field or whatever it is. I'll be there. If the Columbus crew's there, I've already paid for a plane ticket to Columbus on the 17th, but I will pay for another plane ticket to go the 12th and then fly back on the 13th. I don't care. I need to be there for my beloved Columbus crew. We've been on this journey for nine months of podcasting. This season has been nine months long. It has been a roller coaster of emotions. But we're finally here. We got Seattle Sounders in the West that have already clinched their spot. They're going to play the winner of Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota. The Columbus crew have clinched their spot to play against another MLS original, New England Revolution, and the Eastern Conference Finals. And I am so excited. But, guys, this has been season two episode 17 of MLS Gone Wild. From Mike D and myself, Blem, you guys stay safe, stay home, wear a mask, cheer for the crew, watch the MLS. We'll catch you guys next week with a preview for the MLS Cup Finals. Catch y'all later. Peace.